I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, they talk about how the glass is half full in Geneva, the Chinese response to evolving U.S. trade policy, and what's happening in global energy markets. All that and more on this week's episode. All right. Hi, Scott. Hi, Bill. It's been a while. Stepping in for Andrew today. Nice to see you both. Let's get started with a quick discussion of MC12 now that the dust has settled. What's your overall assessment of what was achieved in Geneva? Well, for listeners not understanding uh, Morse code, this is the 12th ministerial conference of the World Trade Organization, lovingly known as MC12, which has been delayed for now two years because of the pandemic and the difficulty of hosting ministerial meetings remotely. But they finally got together face to face. So, Bill, you talked about this last week. Well, I think as people have reflected on it, some new elements have come to the fore. The glass is definitely half full. Even with the dust settling in the water, the glass is half full. The skeptics were surprised that they agreed to anything. And so from a skeptic standpoint, the event was a success because they agreed to actually a bunch of things. And some of them were fairly significant. And we mentioned this last week. I think over the long term, the most significant one will prove to be the fisheries agreement. This was 20 years in the making, and they threw an important piece of it under the bus or under the boat, as the case may be, which was prohibitions or limitations on subsidies that contribute to overfishing. They left in the prohibitions on direct subsidies to, well, overfishing or fishing. But the indirect subsidies are things like fuel subsidies, boat construction subsidies, things that don't directly go to the people doing the fishing, but go to ancillary elements that facilitate, for example, the construction of very large ships that haul in bazillions of fish. That part was removed because they couldn't get agreement. And the reason they couldn't get agreement is the issue that really pervades all of the discussions of the WTO these days, which is what does special and differential treatment for developing countries mean? And who is a developing country? In the WTO, developing country is a matter of self-definition. So you've got a lot of countries that most people don't really regard as developing, including China, defining themselves as developing and demanding special treatment. In the fish case, I think the issue that where everybody part of the company on Article 5, which had been the contributed to article, was Indians' insistence that it have 25 years to comply with the new standards. Everybody else was talking about seven, plus or minus, and India comes in with 25. And in the end, it was easier simply not to deal with that. There is a provision that pushes them to try again, gives them, I think, four years to do it. So this has not gone away. But even without the contributed to section, which would have been huge, it still is an important agreement. Uh, the fish are smiling. They're not grinning, but they're smiling, and we should be happy about that. I think the United States is happy because it got its e-commerce moratorium extended at least through December 2023, when the next ministerial is supposed to be. We'll see if that, that happens. For everybody in the digital trade business, that's a big deal. There was real concern that it would go away this time. We fumbled the ball last year when we allowed the companion moratorium, these things that always go on in tandem, 
when we allowed the companion moratorium that India wanted to be renewed without the e-commerce one also being renewed. So we were kind of playing defense here, but ultimately that succeeded. The element that has continued to be controversial, even though I don't think it makes much difference anymore, was the vaccine waiver. And there, predictably, everybody is unhappy. The industry says this is a giveaway. This compromises intellectual property. This will uh, deter future investment in new vaccines and new pharmaceuticals. The activists said this is a pale imitation of what we wanted, that it's not going to get more vaccine to poor people, and that this is a disaster. My own conclusion has been that it's not much, so I'm not quite sure why the pharma people are so upset. But even if it were more, it's too late. We got plenty of vaccine. The issue is distribution. What they did not do, which would have made more of a difference, was have the waiver cover treatments and other therapies in addition to the actual vaccine, which is what India and South Africa had originally wanted. They didn't get that. They're supposed to revisit that over the next six months. So that also has not gone away. I've said this on numerous occasions in the past. The wonderful thing about trade, you know, is that no problems are ever solved. They're just put off or they reemerge in different forms. So the vaccine waiver will be back in the fall and the fish will be back over the next few years. But weak points aside, from the standpoint of the organization, shot in the arm, they demonstrated that they could actually agree on stuff that required the countries to make some sacrifices. You also had, in the vaccine case, the U.S. and China actually cooperating to work out a compromise. It wasn't earth-shaking, but it was significant that they could actually get together and do that. So on the whole, I think it was a a success, a half-full success. No, look, I think that's fair. And for the relevance of the organization into the future, I agree with you, Bill, that the fisheries subsidies decision is pivotal. It's a global commons problem. And it's one that if the WTO doesn't have a way of dealing with global commons problems, it won't be able to cope with sort of where the future is leading on trade policy. So I'm glad to see progress there. I've always thought that the stumbling block would be special and differential treatment. And they didn't find a resolution to that. I think the resolution is fairly straightforward. It lies in what technology you use and not what income level your economy is at at the moment. But they weren't able to get there, understood. But at least they made some progress on what has been a longstanding issue. I remember this going back at least to the third ministerial conference in Seattle in 1999 as not being able to do anything on fish. So fish subsidies and this issue has been around for a while. Great to see a little resolution. Second, on the IP waiver, we've talked about this a number of times before. When it comes to the vaccine waivers, this was always solving the wrong problem instead of working on problems that did exist. In the world that's producing vaccines today, we're throwing away millions of doses because there's excess supply over demand. Problem has always been distribution, not production. But we'll live to fight another day. As you correctly point out, it didn't actually get solved. And e-commerce, that's fine. Look, so some ways declaring this a success is, uh, I guess George W. Bush coined the phrase, the soft bigotry of low expectations. We have a WTO that's not completely a zombie international organization. That's the good news because there, we have plenty of zombie international organizations. But this is not a great achievement. And we won't see great achievements until the big traders decide there's a problem that they want to work together on. They did agree to launch a WTO reform program. It's vague and not specific and not particularly directional, but there was at least a commitment to get started. And the U.S. has said that it wants to participate in that, which is a good sign since they are one of the main people responsible for the problem. 
So we'll see where that takes us over the next six months or a year. The United States has not really put forward proposals of its own on this yet. Maybe this means that they're going to. We'll see. Well, as the uh, resident millennial in the group here, I can't help but ask a question about climate change at the WTO. It seems like the deal on fishery subsidies was really a milestone for sustainability. How is that the case? This is one of these problems that it's not a a matter of territory as much as it is because the ocean is, while there, there are territorial limits to claims on the ocean in terms of sovereigns, it's a global commons. So it's the classic global commons problem. It was one that didn't have to sustain a lot of debate and disagreement over whether there's a problem or, or what the problem might be. It's well understood we have the technology to completely extract almost every living creature from the sea uh, that we want to, which would be very bad for the future. So uh, we're not debating over, for instance, whether the climate is changing, or whether that's good or bad, or whether we can mitigate versus invent our way around it. This one, there's a clear problem, and it needed a global commons sort of solution where people took nation states or, or economies were to take steps that went beyond their usual commitments for domestic regulation. Okay, well, let's turn now to China. Late last month in May, Secretary of State Blinken provided the administration's overview of its China strategy. China has since responded, and they've put forth a list of grievances, many of which are focused on U.S. trade policy, including legislation on the Hill that is aimed at China. So what does this mean for U.S.-China relations? What's happening on the Hill that China finds concerning? It means it's like Seinfeld. It means it's Festivus time, the sharing of grievances. That seems to be all that we can do is to complain about each other. Are we going to skip the feats of strength this year? The which? The feats of strength, which were part oh. of Festivus. Well, you know, that, I was, hope so. that was Trump. <laughs> Trump was into the feats of strength. Yes. Now I think we're in the sharing of grievances. Yes. Anyway, the Chinese have demonstrated continually and, and increasingly that they really have pretty thin skins. No insult goes unresponded to or goes unattacked. And no country goes unbullied if it dares to uh, disagree with what the Chinese are doing. This does not help them. It does not help them globally. It does not win hearts and minds. But it seems to be what they're doing. And I don't think anybody here is going to pay much attention to their list of grievances about us. But I'm equally confident they're not paying much attention about our list of grievances about them. We will move on. What, What I said before is that Despite all the throwing water balloons at each other, I don't think there's any real interest in having a serious negotiation on any of this stuff. The Chinese know that they're not going to give us what we want on our economic demands. And I think Biden knows that if he comes back with anything, the Republicans will say it's not good enough. I see them lobbing water balloons at each other, at least through the midterms. I don't see anything any serious effort to address any of the problems. Yeah, it looks, you seem to be like we like to lecture each other on issues of particular irritants. I think uh, Secretary Blinken's speech was in large measure a lecture that was not welcomed. And nobody here seems to care about Chinese lectures about us. So it doesn't get anywhere. But it does look to me like we have lost, at least for the moment, any interest. I'm not sure what we're doing. I did note that uh, Ambassador Tai talked about the notion of having leverage when she spoke with Congress and how, what a great thing that was. But if you don't have a negotiating agenda, what's the point of leverage? I mean, what are you going to use it for? I'm a bit mystified, but I, I think, Bill, you've got your finger on it, that we just don't want to make progress on commercial issues with China at the moment for whatever set of real politic reasons. I think they'd like to if they thought they could, but yeah. I don't see any expectation in the administration 
that the Chinese are inclined to accommodate us. They're acutely aware that if they bring back anything short of total victory, they're going to be attacked. I feel a little bit sorry for the administration. They're in a really ironic position because they are simultaneously being criticized for being soft and also being criticized for not having a policy. If you don't have a policy, I think it's a little inconsistent to say that your policy is too soft. But anyway, they're being hit from both sides on that. They're wrestling with the tariff question, and they're in the short run Ambassador Tai is off the hook because she testified on this this week and essentially said, well, it's on the president's desk. And that appears to be true. You know, there have been multiple meetings and she made her argument, which is don't lift them. And other people made their arguments, which is do lift them or some of them. This is why the president gets the big bucks. He gets to make a decision, which he hasn't made yet. So we're all going to wait and see. If I were betting, what he'll say is that we're going to get rid of some of them. We're going to get rid of the ones that don't matter strategically from a security standpoint and the ones that are causing collateral damage. But we're going to keep the ones that are important from a security standpoint. And being presidential, you know, he may just stop there. And that then leads to the obvious questions. Well, which is which? You can probably say, well, you know, semiconductors, I don't know if there are Trump tariffs on semiconductors, but steel, aluminum, ICT products, sure, these have security implications. Apparel, probably not. But, you know, there's thousands of tariff lines. If he makes that decision, the next step is going to be to say probably, well, USTR, you decide. And that means he turns it over to somebody who doesn't want to do that, which means a long, slow process of examining exclusions or non-renewals, all of which are currently underway, but all of which have produced very little so far. You know, they produced a few hundred exclusions have been continued. I don't think they have yet announced that any of the tariffs are going away, despite an ongoing review and despite the law that says on, I think it's July 6th, the whole first tranche is supposed to go away. So they're going to say something in the next 10 days would be my guess. But I suspect what it's going to be is we're going to continue the process of looking at this very carefully. All right. Well, let's turn now to another topic that we've been covering quite a lot recently on the show, which is what's happening with Russia. Putin met this week with leaders of BRIC countries. He spoke a lot about energy markets and trade with India and China that he says has been increasing. So are Western sanctions pushing Russia closer to these countries? I think the answer is most definitely yes. Russia, despite the logistical complexities associated with changing destinations for products like crude oil that require additional processing or products like natural gas that are actually quite difficult to move certain places at certain times, they seem to be finding buyers. China has rapidly increased its purchases of both Russian crude oil and Russian natural gas. Same with India. And given a global market that is short on supply, that's not a surprise. What it appears to be doing is turning European energy policy on its head. I did note that Germany is going to restart its coal-fired electric generation programs. I imagine Greta Thunberg and others may be sad about this, but it is without regard to how people feel about it. It's a total reversal of the commitments to renewable energy, but also it underscores the importance of natural gas, in this case, reliable natural gas from Russia, as what was producing a lot of the productivity gains in German industry that's now they, they're trying to wean themselves off of. So it looks to me like Russia came out of this with lots of buyers for its exports. The sanctions applied by the European Union and the United States seem to be creating a lot of pain in the European Union and the United States. 
and not so much in Russia. Well, I don't think you're creating much pain here, but I think you're right about Europe. To me, the interesting question, which is a long-term question, not a short-term one, is whether this connotes a, a rearrangement of not the deck chairs on the Titanic, but a, a rearrangement of global supply chains. Are we, in fact, heading toward a world in which there's going to be two very large economic blocks, the West and then Russia, China, maybe some others, and, and then some people in between? I'm not sure that's the way it's going to play out. But right now, it's clearly happening in energy as, as Russia is refocusing its trade on China and India. But in the Russian case, I mean, that's their main export, and that doesn't constitute an entire economy. I think the question will be how China behaves and how China acts going forward. Are they going to go along with buying more stuff from Russia and selling more stuff to Russia and not abandoning, but moving away from their economic relationships with the West? Or are they going to try to avoid that and try to increase their role as a global economic power? I would think that they would be more interested in the latter than the former. But the more they accommodate Russia through fuel purchases or oil and gas purchases, and the more they accommodate Russia through other purchases, minerals, for example, the more they shut themselves off from the rest of the world. So this is something we ought to probably watch as we go forward, trying to figure out how all the chess pieces are rearranging themselves on the board. I found just an interesting parallel that Treasury Secretary Yellen talked about purchases from friendly countries. I wasn't exactly sure who our friends were that we were going to reshore on. But I think that's fine as a top-line comment, but not every economy produces every good. So China, for instance, in rare earths production and processing is miles ahead of anywhere else. And if you need rare earths, there's not an obvious source other than China. And if you're making almost anything in the electronic space, you do need rare earths. So there's some things like that that, while a comment from Secretary Yellen sounds pretty good, which friend is planning to open those neodymium mines and processing centers that we so long for from a friendly supplier? It's not clear to me how any of this works. Well, speaking of Secretary Yellen, let's turn now to what's been happening domestically in energy markets. The Biden administration has unveiled plans to pursue a gas tax holiday, which has made quite the headline around the world. Would a gas tax holiday make a difference to Americans paying at the pump? Or is the problem actually too global in nature for this type of domestic fix? Well, look, we have a problem with supply. The problem with supply has been building for some time. There's been sort of now seven or eight years of underinvestment in the entire hydrocarbons chain. And it's some combination of changes in demand. Obviously, demand went pretty near zero in March 2020 when the U.S. economy shut down because of response to the COVID-19. So there have been fluctuations. But over time, the hydrocarbon sector is both oil and natural gas, both crude oil uh, exploration development and refining have been quite restricted. So I think it was the last new refinery built in the United States was opened in 1977. So population's grown. We use a lot more gasoline and other refined products. We haven't built a refinery. Now, the administration is partly promoting a strategy which has restricted some forms of exploration and refining. In fact, there was a refinery expansion that was to be permitted in May and that the administration declined to permit. There's been a major debate with the two senators from Alaska about oil production in Alaska who are coming up on decisions on offshore production. So there are a lot of supply constraints facing the industry now. 
And the gas tax won't really do much to deal with those supply constraints. If you leave the policy of constraining supply in place, whether it's there because of the administration policy and energy transition policies, some of it was underinvestment because you got higher ratings on the ESG scores if you produce less energy. So there's a number of factors involved, but we have a shortage of investment in the sector that's creating supply shortages. Lifting of the gas tax, the federal gas tax is what, 18 cents a gallon, roughly speaking. And lifting that for three months would be some relief, but not a lot, sort of on the order of usage from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which we've consumed now. Not many people noticed that as prices were going up. So we had to deal with supply, which I think is what the energy firms told the, uh, the White House yesterday. Or we decide we're going to go with this energy transition. Either way, we're going to have to involve the voters in this. Well, that wraps up this week's episode of The Trade Guys. Join us next week when we return to our usual Thursday schedule. Thanks, Emily. Bye-bye. To our listeners, if you have a question for The Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.